1992, a black man went down to Memphis, Tennessee and took second place in the Elvis Impersonator World Championships. He came in second again in 1997. When it happened a third time in 1999, some said he'd never actually win. After all, it was the heart of the Deep South, in the city where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And up against a hundred other white Elvises, or Elvi is the plural they use in the industry, some of whom had had upwards of $40,000 worth of plastic surgery just to look more like Elvis. Still, he persisted. In 2003, Robert Washington became the only black man ever to win the Images of the King Elvis World Championships. I first met Robert in 1999 as part of a film crew working on a documentary about Elvis impersonators. The documentary has a bit of a comedic undertone, but the Elvis impersonators themselves, Robert included, are very serious about their craft, from their $4,000 Elvis jumpsuits to knowing every move and lyric, vocal nuance, makeup, hair, you name it. And they're also, for the most part, very sane. Nobody thinking they're channeling Elvis's spirit or that they're somehow some long-lost love child of, of Elvis and their mother through a one-night tryst or something. Mostly just die-hard Elvis fans, as Robert is. However, Robert is noticeably different. Entertaining and competing in contests, trying to impersonate the white king of rock and roll. When people talk about accomplishments of breaking down racial barriers or shattering glass ceilings, being the first major league baseball player who's African-American to play in the white leagues, or the first African-American president of the United States. I can't think of a more watershed moment than when a black man becomes world champion at impersonating the white king of rock and roll. As a white man, I cannot imagine having the talent and drive and determination to win a world championship Ray Charles impersonator contest. And if I did, my God, what kind of talent would I have to have to make that achievement? I was lucky enough to be there in 2003 when Robert Washington shattered that glass ceiling as part of a film crew returning to document his quest. The video of that evening is absolute pandemonium. The audio is distorted and, and clipping because of so much crowd noise in celebration of his victory, as well as the video crew, we probably were the loudest screaming in celebration. 
for years after, we would screen the documentary in my hometown of Olympia, Washington in January around Elvis's birthday, kind of a kitschy Elvis birthday bash, and immediately follow it with a live world champion Elvis concert. And Robert became our de facto go-to guy. He was a crowd favorite, and he was my favorite. In the summer of 2020, after the death of George Floyd, when protests erupted nationwide, they erupted in Olympia as well. People were divided on some of the violence and vandalism taking place. People were divided on issues like police brutality or defunding the police. As the summer wore on, the divisions only grew deeper, and the stresses of the coronavirus lockdown only exacerbated things. I contacted Robert and asked him if we might move that concert up this year, knowing very likely we wouldn't have a suitable place or capability to have a concert due to coronavirus in January. But maybe for just a little while on Labor Day weekend, we could feel normal, have some fun, have a safe socially distanced outdoor concert on Labor Day weekend by the lake overlooking the state capitol. So when Robert came out to give his concert, people of all different ages, colors, and creeds came down to check it out. And for just a little while, we did feel a little bit normal, a little bit more like a community. And Robert and I took the opportunity to sit down and talk about what was going on in his life, in his world, and in America. I'll share that with you now. As I was trying to think of when I first met you, it, it brought to mind that uh, when we were working on Almost Elvis and going all over the country chasing down some of the top contenders for the world championship and, and also some of the most uh, uh, unique ones or, or oddball ones, um, you know, this guy who's African-American, who's vying for the title, paints battleships back in Portland, Maine. Um, you know, it's kind of a neat story, but I didn't get to, I think the stars didn't align and I didn't go on the, uh, the cruise shoot to, uh, profile you. No, you didn't. And, uh, so I met you for the first time actually down in Memphis when we were kind of at the apex of shooting, uh, almost Elvis. And, uh, I thought you were a little bit, you know, everything from shy to standoffish to not sure wh whether we were we had good intentions or we're going to, because I would imagine, and, and I've certainly since found out that, that when you do this stuff and dress up as Elvis, let alone a, a black man dressing up as Elvis, you, you put, set yourself up for a little bit of scorn and mockery, don't you? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, when I've seen when I've seen you, people immediately take a liking to you. Like, who is this cat who looks like Elvis? And and he's laid back. He's not pompous, and and you seem to win crowds over left and right. But like walking around a mall, uh, you know, going to IHOP or whatever you do in in the daytime, you know, where, where the public interfaces with you. Are you are you just asking for it? 
No, not really. I mean, when I leave the stage, I pretty much leave Elvis on the stage. I mean, I, I I'm the biggest Elvis fan out there, you know. And but there's a time and place for everything. And off the stage, um, I'm back to being Robert. You know, I, I I gear myself up for a show. You know, days and weeks before the event, and I. Uh, you know, like an hour or two before the show, I, I get in my, I call it my zone where I, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to, I'm thinking about the show, concentrating about the show and doing the best performance I can. You know, I I don't think about, I'm a black man going up on stage doing it. I'm, I think of myself as a man getting up there on there and getting ready to entertain X amount of people out there in the audience who paid good money to come see a good show. And that's, that's my total goal entertaining the people who came to watch so then after that everything else is <clears throat> beyond my control what what kind of stuff have you encountered on stage all purely positive because you're a talented performer um people uh surprised when they show up and they're gonna see a black El elvis perform or they think it's a, a uh, a, a joke or uh you knock them dead after the first song or all the above all the above you now it, it you know it goes back you know because i've been doing this for over 30 years so you know back in the early days yeah that was it because i never advertised myself as being a black El elvis impersonator or elvis performer or elvis tribute artist uh i didn't think i needed to <laughs> i i was really kind of naive going into this whole elvis thing because i I really didn't think there was an issue w w with race, but obviously there was. So, uh, in that thirty years, has has that issue? How has it changed? If if it has, well, uh, well, it's changed for me personally because everybody knows me now, you know. So they know I'm I'm a black tribute artist, but uh, Elvis tribute artist. But and, and they know I, I I guess I'm still a pretty good, a pretty decent tribute artist because I'm still. I'm still getting shows booked and stuff, so you know I've I've got a pretty good fan base, uh, a good following. People, you know, buy my merchandise, buy my CDs. They come see the shows. They look forward to seeing me, you know, year after year after year. So I uh, want to get a shout out to them. I appreciate all the people who's been supporting me all over the, over the years. So I, I think I got a pretty strong fan base. Sure. Know? One of the things when I was thinking about first meeting you was, um, you know, like I said, it was in the context of a documentary film shoot. And then uh, we had you uh, come back a year or two later when the film was out and, and doing publicity and stuff and had another guy who who was in the film who actually had, had won uh, uh, the world championship as well and had the two of you uh, not really... Elvis Black versus White, but 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 the two of you headlining a show uh, as kind of a promotion for the film, and that was the first time that I was that I guess I, I got to watch you perform as just some dude watching a guy perform, not shooting, not running all over trying to do interviews and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and um, I hadn't seen an Elvis do Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, and um, I don't think I'd seen it that time. Um, you've lost that love and feeling 
And a lot of people don't, you know, I mean, you go see an Elvis show in Vegas or something, you see Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock and all the kind of stuff that Elvis is known for. Uh, but you talk to these Elvis, you know, freak fans who who are deep into the whole Elvis catalog. And they're like, you know, if an Elvis singer can do this song, that's a that's a guy with talent. And, and I, that's that, you know. Wow, he's hitting every single note that, you know, it, it, that's what really kind of blew me away with you was like uh, just the, the the power and the stage presence that people had talked about. But we'd only gotten to see kind of this uh, more a little bit reserved about about uh, a film crew following you around and stuff. Um, so as, as as you've matured in this industry and as you've won a world championship, um, have, have you had any um, people express any um i guess what's what's the um have you ha- had people ask you uh for for your 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 tips on how to become a, 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 a you know have that kind of stage presence or that vocal quality because- oh yeah i mean you know i've had you know over the years you know dozens of you know up and coming etas young kids who starting out you know and uh they kind of look up to me, being the old the old veteran up here, you know, still still trying to shake my leg, you know, at my at my age. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's a compliment, you know. They obviously seen me, you know, like, you know, and almost all of us has been a big uh, boost for my morale, a boost for me uh, being recognized around around the world, you know, because I've seen people from other countries who have a copy of the of the documentary so uh when i well i saw you on i saw you on that documentary almost all of us you know and i thought you were good and do you have any tips for me and you know just i you know i i tell the guys you know it's great trying to you know impersonate elvis but you know nobody can do elvis 100 percent self elvis You've got to in, inject some of your own personality into your performance, and it it, it took a while for me to uh, do that myself. You know, you all you almost become robotic. You know, when you try to do exact the, the exact same moves that Elvis did on stage to a particular song, and uh, I, I learned and, and, and looking at videos and stuff for me early on that uh, it, it just doesn't work. It's it's got to be a part of you too. You know, mm. so I, I've I've kind of cast you as a a a racial pioneer that breaks down barriers, and I don't know if you like that title, that mantle, or not. But to me, um, you know, if you, sure you put civil rights icons up like like um, people who who break down barriers. The first person uh, to, to hit up a Fortune 500 company or the first uh, black U.S. senator or, or the first black president, for that matter, um, or, or somebody to to resist uh, uh, busing rules and things like that. The first little girl to to go to integrated uh, uh, schools. But to me, one thing that when I, I've seen you perform and I've watched an audience that if you want to stereotype the Elvis crowd, I mean, most people could, right? They'd think they're... Um, they're red hat wearing MAGA Republican white uptight probably lean a little bit uh, a racist and 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 uh, evangelical and all these stereotypes and and granted some of those might be true um, and yet you're the guy 
that gets through to them. You're, you're the guy. They're, they're, I'm, you know, maybe they have a kid or a grandkid who 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 listens to African American artists doing hip hop or rap or something like that. Um, but here you are, and and you are crossing color barriers by being the best Elvis they've ever seen. Some of them would say. Did did do you notice that? Do you think that way? Do you carry any extra uh, uh, weight on your shoulders about being? sort of a, a pioneer in that way or, or getting through to a, a part of the population that maybe um, a lot of America's black culture doesn't connect with? Hmm. Wow. Uh, or am I not, putting too much on it? <laughs> that's not the way I, I, I started. I, it, it's, I think it happened that way, the way you just described, but that wasn't my intention. You know, my intention was going up on stage and being the best Elvis I could be. And if that overflowed beyond the stage, you know, into an audience, you know, which majority are, are white and uh, they're are true Elvis fans. Well, if you're a true Elvis fan and uh, you, you, you like what Elvis did, all, all their eras, you know, we break it down to three eras, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, then... Uh, you gotta like me because I. <laughs> you do all three. I do all three exactly, and I. Uh, if you respect my talent, then it, it yeah, it it crosses the borderline, and and Elvis did the same thing back in the day when he first started. You know, Elvis was traveling so much. He, he you know he left a a wake so huge that he, he that he didn't realize what was happening you know he was moving around traveling so much singing that he didn't know what kind of changes he was making in the world you know because elvis black people were listening to elvis back in the 50s you know when he came out white it, people were listening to him you know it, he crossed all color barriers you know what well, i don't even know what he was doing and i, I think i'm kind of in my way doing the same thing we were talking and uh, earlier and i you mentioned that you'd, you'd heard people talking about Elvis being racist and you you disagreed and had researched the topic. And I, I, I told you, you know, there's a famous recording where he's, uh, he's talking about how he decided to sing Don't Be Cruel a certain way. And he gives a, a black guy in Vegas credit for, for singing the hell out of that song um, with like respect, you know, and props to a guy um, and saying that he was a black guy. And, and um, I just think, you know, when he said that, must have been like fifty-eight or so, something like that. Fifty-six, I believe. Yeah. And and so I, I just thought, well, that that's pretty good to hear a guy, you know, um, being that that respect and 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 giving a guy props. But the th the thing about you that really um, uh, hit home with me was watching you do an Elvis gospel show that I knew some old you know, kind of uptight white Southern Baptist watching, you know, want, and, and wanting to hear their, their favorite gospel tunes and looking over and seeing two or three of these people just in tears, weeping. And, and it, it's like, if, you, if you, you could not put that in a bottle, somebody, um, a black Elvis dressed in, in a, a white suit with a red satin tie and people who normally might be you know, cast as a little bit uh, prejudiced, are sitting there having this this uh, transcendental experience of hearing Elvis sing gospel tunes. Does that um, does that translate to you? Do you feel that 
impactful to people or are you just having fun tearing it up singing your most favorite songs both i mean what, what that, of, that's what it's all about getting if you can get a song like that across to people and sing it right because you look in the audience you see that their eyes are closed because they are they're like back to when they first heard the song or they they somebody who saw Elvis sing that song or they're thinking about the first time they heard the song and yeah and I and I think if you do that right and, and it comes across like that you know it doesn't matter who you are you know to me it's the song the person singing it the emotion that comes out of the song especially with gospel you know because that's Elvis's favorite music you know Elvis loved gospel music and uh and and every every uh, gospel recording Elvis did, he poured his heart and soul out into it, and just put one on, put a record on. How great thou art, you know, in the garden, just, and listen to that voice. And I think that's what the majority of the people do. So, would you uh, give us a few bars of a of a favorite gospel song? When you woke. Through storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. Cause at the edge of a storm is a golden sky and a sweet silver song of life. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, all your dreams be tossed and turned. Any more? No, I, I know when you hit the power tunes in that song, it, it's going to blow, but uh, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, so uh, this sounds like a dumb question, but, uh, but it... it uh, I'm just going to ask it. What do black people think of you singing Elvis? Is there a, a a a response you get frequently, or a whole spectrum? Uh, well, uh, the last few years, I mean, there's been some more, uh, a few more of my folk coming out to shows and stuff. And I'm fortunate enough to do a couple of shows in my hometown of uh, Cape Girardeau a couple of years ago, and a lot of people I went to school with. Uh, and uh, I think they, 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 they heard about me, but they never first time they ever got to see me uh, do a show. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of closet <laughs> Elvis out there, fans of black, uh, who don't want to admit it because uh, that stigma that, that came out with Elvis and uh, him being a racist, you know, and... And it's, and it's my generation, you know. I, I've watched videos on YouTube. Uh, some of those, the uh, uh, what do they call them when they look at a artist sing on YouTube, and then they oh, like a reaction video, a reaction video. Oh, exactly. there's some of those of Elvis guys are just going crazy going the crazy. first time they've heard Elvis. I, I've watched those for hours, and I get it, you know. And they they didn't get it because you know they weren't around. They weren't even born when Elvis died, you know, and. They're listening to Elvis sing, and one of the best songs is If I Can Dream, and they're going, holy, sh you know, crap, I can't believe it. I, I can friggin' sing. And uh, that's what I like to see, because we got a younger generation of people 
black Americans and Afro-Americans who were seeing Elvis for what he really was, a, a truly great artist. And just to be clear, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the, the criticism of Elvis that I've heard is not ever that he was racist, but that he took black music and packaged it, you know, like has happened with rap and hip hop and all other types of music, uh, and packaged it in a, a nice pretty white boy to sell to the white kids. And that was, wasn't that uh, Sam Phillips' idea or Tom, his uh, manager, uh, well, uh, Colonel Tom? Sam Phillips said, if I could find a white man who could sound like a black man, I could make a million dollars. And uh, that was a statement because before Elvis, Elvis, I mean, Sam Phillips was recording. 95% of his clientele were, were black artists, you know. And, uh, and you know, back in the segregated South, and, you know, you just weren't going to find a black artist who, who you can make a million dollars off of. Until Elvis came along and sounded the way he sounded. And as far as Elvis is, you know, you can't... Elvis wasn't a rich kid, you know, who lived in the, uh, uh, upstate well, he, he Tupelo. Dirt know. poor, wasn't he? You know, Elvis wasn't a rich kid who came down and uh, tried to, you know, s- stayed in the black community for two weeks and tried to pick up all that. Elvis grew up just as poor as any black child in Tupelo, Mississippi, back in 1935, 36, 37, when he was growing up. So Elvis lived next door to black people. He, uh, he was just as poor as any black person in Tupelo, Mississippi, when in his early years. So uh, you can't steal from an environment that you grew up in. That's what I try to say. Uh, I love reading stories of him, like climbing up on, on milk crates or something uh, to, to listen to gospel music exactly. from the, I think a nearby Presbyterian church when he was, you know, seven years old or something. Um, so when you say you think there, there's uh, more closet fans in the, in the black community, because you know, People from all over the world uh, are fans. Um, do you do you get thumbs up from people in the black community well, when they see know. that you're exactly exactly? And I went to Oxford, Mississippi, when they did a week long study of uh, of Elvis, and back in 1993, they had a a study of Elvis's his impact on American culture, and they had. You know, all these scholars and stuff, Oxford, Mississippi. And I was invited. And, uh, 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 Elvis was, was there. And, uh, the professor from Ole Miss, uh, yeah. uh Vernon Chadwick. Yeah, we Vernon, put Chad- Vernon Chadwick is there. He's the one who brought me down. And, uh, they had some of the old blues artists and Gator Mouth Moore. I remember him now. And, uh, one of his, assistants or whatever came up after i got done singing uh came backstage and grabbed me and said uh got somebody wants to meet you and i go all right so went backstage and there's this guy sitting in this his chair looked like a throne and he had a an african garb on the daishiki and sitting there and he go you robert washington i go yes sir and uh he shook his head like this and said it's about time I go, holy crap. I knew who he was. And, uh, you know, he's one of the old blues pioneers back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, he said, it's about time. And that that brought me to tears, you know. So so I guess I'm doing something right. But 
I, 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 it's my love of Elvis. You know, it's got nothing to do with the racial barriers and and all this stuff. It's just to me is uh, if it if it's for a positive thing, it's great. But but to me, my love, I've I've since I was seven eight years old, I've been an Elvis fan. All this stuff here is just icing on the cake. You know, I could lose my voice right now, and if a new Elvis CD or album came out, I would go buy it because. He's changed my life in so many different ways. I'm sitting here in a studio in Olympia, Washington, you know. Yeah, but 3,000 miles away from my home. so in Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. Yeah, Maine. The, the same Portland. Uh, but to me, there is there is something bigger about uh, the always a bridesmaid, never a bride. The, hey, I, I entered the world championship. I was that good, and I came in second. I, I went back. I came in second again. I went back. I came in second again. And no matter what color you are, whatever whatever race, creed, religion, orientation, um, identity you have, we all could take a, a page out of that playbook of keep on keeping on and persist. Um and then to to do that and to persevere and win, um, there's just nothing, you know, a more Cinderella story than that um, as far as inspiration. Um, and, and so it, what does that mean to you? How, how, how did that feel to, to finally crack that glass ceiling, if, if you will? Well, uh, <laughs> be truthful with the other time that I won, I... Wasn't expecting anything. <laughs> I went out and, you know, I, I I had my songs lined up. I had, what can I do different? You know, after a certain amount of years, you know, you're trying to nitpick your performance, you know, because they, they record your performance, and I would, you know, get a copy, and I'd study it, and what am I doing wrong? I look at the other guys and seeing what I could do to improve, and I'm just going time after time after time. I'm going, uh... I think I I think I was better than this guy. I think I was better than this guy. I I think I sounded better than this guy, and I and it came, it came to a point where I'm saying, uh, I don't think there's anything else I can do to improve what I've you know what I'm doing. And so, the year that I won, I really didn't I didn't plan that much. You know, I pick my I'm I'm always picky on my songs. You know, uh, but. I didn't do to, anything different that year than I'd done in any other previous year. What made you keep coming back if you got to that point where you thought, it cannot be done by me any better than that, and they're still saying uh, some pretty boy is better or, or some uh, some new kid on the block is better? What, what What makes somebody keep on keeping on? Fans. I mean, I'm getting standing ovations, you know, after after particular songs and stuff from the crowd, and they're going crazy after after my performance, and I'm going. Obviously, I'm doing something right, you know. I'm doing how great they are, and I'm getting everybody in the hall, in the venue, standing up with their lighters and everything, clapping. I'm getting standing ovations. I that's that's what it's all about, you know. It. it doesn't come down to what those four or five judges sitting at that table think. It's what those 1,500, 2,000 people in that room are thinking. And they're all on their feet, so I think I'm doing something right. So, And if they're sitting in Memphis, Tennessee in August for a whole week of Elvis stuff, 
I mean, I say this lovingly, but they're Elvis freaks, right? They know every single note of every single song, and they know which guys hit the high note perfectly and bend it up or bend it down exactly like Elvis did or snap into falsetto, or the guys who back off and can't quite make that cut. And and that's the difference between what I've seen of guys, you know, getting an ovation like you're talking about. In addition to putting some of themselves into their performance and having, you know, charisma and all, all that stuff. But having the, the crowd eaten out of the palm of their hands. If you win a crowd over in Memphis, to me, that's that's like, you know, acing serves at Wimbledon or something. There is no higher yeah. authority. Um. So how how things go after you won? Did, did your life change dramatically? Were you all over the news? Did did uh, national news want to say, hey, you know what? You might think uh, an African American man winning the presidency is a big deal, but uh, an African American man winning Elvis World Championship in Memphis um, is is about as much of a long shot, or if not more. I went back to work <laughs> <laughs> as Elvis. <laughs> I went back to the shipyard uh, after I won, and you know it was in the newspaper and, and local newspaper and some other newspapers, but it was no big deal. It didn't change my life. Uh, I went back doing the same shows I did before, and basically nothing changed. Did so, you wear a big giant world title belt around the shipyard? Oh, every chance I got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it wasn't a safety hazard. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't. It was just a personal goal, and. Uh, it was just something I started back, you know, in the early 90s when it first started, or the 80s, and, and I would have been there anyway. You know, I, I, I liked coming down for Elvis Week, you know. Then became a family reunion with all the people, you know, used to come year after year after year in the early days. And so I saved my vacation from work and, uh, you know, come down for Elvis Week. It was fun. My vacation. There's something uh, that I I was talking to somebody the other day about about you, and um, you know, I was talking about being a really approachable, humble, nice guy, and, and that kind of stuff. And and I said, you know, but there's something that whether you're talking about uh, UFC fighting or ice skating or tennis. Um, or whatever it might be, uh, the basketball. There's something about somebody that is the best in the world at something. You know, I mean, that is, that's, and, and there's some common ground among a lot of the people that are just the best at something. Um, and so getting to, you know, you, you say I'm having an interview with the best tennis player on the planet. Well, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a big deal or the best. I got a buddy who was a world champion MMA fighter. Um, but say that somebody's the best Elvis impersonator on the planet, you know, people immediately who aren't really familiar with the topic, right? They probably snicker a little bit and yeah. think of a big fat guy who thinks he was Elvis's love child. Uh, his mom had an affair as a groupie or something, or, or you know, he's channeling Elvis from above. Um, but to me, I, I, you know, kind of being immersed in this world for a little while working on a documentary, it, it was um, it was really educational because to be the best in the world at something, whether it is ice skating or UFC fighting or Elvis tribute, it's it's pretty amazing and pretty noteworthy, independent of all of the, uh, you know, uh, racial barriers being broken and so on. Um, do do you do you ever sit back and just say, "Wow, I'm the best in the world at something"? Not who can say that. 
Of course I didn't. You know, I, I, like I said, it's something I've, I, it was 16 years in the making, you know. So, uh, yeah, I would sit back and look at my trophy, you know, and finally, I said, I finally, I finally did it. I didn't give up, persevered, and achieved my dream, you know. It wasn't a life goal, you know, something, but I'm just happy I won, you know. It was, it's just a, another chapter, you know. Then you move on to something else, you know. It wasn't, I'm done, I've won. <laughs> well, all I want to see you. Bye, Memphis. So here I am babbling on about what I mean. It, it, what a, what an amazing breaking of the glass ceiling your achievement is. And I thought, you know, uh, wow, you know, the world has fundamentally changed. A, a black man won the Elvis Impersonator World Championships. A black man won the U.S. presidency. And and I went to his inauguration on my honeymoon, and, and then he 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 won a second term as president. The world has fundamentally changed, and fast forward, it's 2020, and the world is a shit show. <laughs> and I don't think uh, classes and races and political persuasions have been more divided uh, in in decades. Um, how does that? How does that? How do you see the 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 I don't know if it's, we call it backsliding, but the divide. Well, it's, I, I mean, I'm like you. It's just totally, the world is just totally, it's upside down. It just really, and and, and it's hard to categorize it, you know what I mean? It's just, you got the pandemic, then you got the, the police injustice with the shootings, and then you got the the. I don't want to get into politics here, but uh, yeah, it's we're we're not living in a in a good place right now, and it doesn't seem to have an end. You know, it's going to be it's we're in for a long haul here, I think. And so you were you were you. I would imagine that, like I said, you have a, a deep connection to the Elvis community, which is overwhelmingly white. It's global, but in America, it's overwhelmingly white. Um, and you're obviously a part of the African-American community. Um, do you feel any special uh, call or calling or, or conflict? When, when you see America kind of, some, in some ways, dividing along racial lines yeah. or dividing along... Um, uh, political lines. Well, I, I draw back to <laughs> an old saying that I I watched an interview with. Uh, uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank here. Carl Perkins wrote "Blue Suede Shoes" and recorded it before he got in his accident. He had a little analogy. He goes, you know, back in the '50s, you know, you know, I had blue suede shoes. Elvis had Hound Dog and Chuck Berry. You know. And and Fast Domino and Little Richard, you know, he said you go to a jukebox, and you look at the artist's title, Elvis Presley, Hound Dog. He didn't say he was white. You look down, you go down a little bit. You had Chuck Berry, you know, uh, Lu, uh, Lucille, that's uh, BB King, but uh, that's Little Richard. But it didn't say black artist or colored art artist. 
And that was kind of an analogy. I watched that interview a few years ago, and I go, you know what? He's right. Look at a jukebox face. It didn't say that artist was black, white, or or Spanish, Latino. It said the name and the name of the song. And I, I kind of look at the world like that. If we could go back to that, just it's never going to happen. But, you know, uh, that struck me. He said, those guys back in the 50s were doing something, you know, without realizing they were doing it. And they were breaking down those walls, the barriers, the color barriers, you know, black artists and white artists. And uh, I went to Stacks. I went to Stacks uh, Museum there in, in Memphis a couple of weeks ago. And you pay to go and see the tour. And, and first thing you do is go in and they show you a little short the movie short about five six minutes long and uh because it was so integrated with you know black and white artists musicians and everything in stacks you know when you walked in that door there was no color barrier and he said one of the commentators one of the musicians said if martin luther king wouldn't have been assassinated in memphis uh this studio would still be running right now and that struck me. So, I mean, I almost, my eyes were watering. I, and it hit me because they go, you know what? You're right. Because it, it struck such a chord in Memphis. And it was never the same again when they came in. The black and white artists, it, it, it was the job. It wasn't fun anymore. And, uh, and that's what it's becoming right now. Yeah, if you're not familiar later. with with Stax, it, it, uh, I only found out about Stax Records maybe 10, 20 years ago, being uh, really the the Motown of, of the South. It was and, and absolutely powerhouse of soul music and rhythm and blues um, that uh, just hit after hit after hit came came out of that place, and it, and it's still a, a museum in Memphis today. But it was the integration. Black and white artists, musicians there. That that was the thing. When you take the tour, I mean, they had a group of, of white guys coming out opening for some of the shows, you know, and they were good. <laughs> you know, it would it would say they would come out and they go, "What the hell? We got four white guys up here." And then the second song, they were into it because they were the good, and that's what it was all about. And it all changed after April fourth, nineteen sixty eight. So we were uh, uh, there after almost all of us came out. We were back in Memphis for several years uh, doing promotion and stuff and uh, other uh, things. And did an interview with uh, one of the uh, reverends that was uh, at the Hotel Lorraine when, when he, in fact, he was the only one um, on the balcony when uh, Reverend King was shot. And uh, he's told this story. He, he told it to us when we were interviewing him for a, another documentary. And he's told it so many times, probably a million times, you must think. And, and it, he says it with the, the passion of, a, of a, you know, a black Southern preacher. And he says, you know, I asked myself, why? Why was I there? And he says, I finally you know, found consolation that in a, 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 a crucifixion has to have witnesses. And, and the way he tells it, you know, it's just, tear jerking and we we're I don't know, five white dudes interviewing this guy who's this icon and one of the last you know original 
five or six guys that were there uh, that was still alive. And um, hearing him hearing him tell that, so uh, I don't know what the word is. It's so like it it, it it was so full of peace. I, I don't want to say that that forgiveness. I guess for lack of a better term, you know, I mean, this guy was was clearly um, you know had, had a Buddha like presence about him that was almost unsettling. But my point is that that that. Um, groundedness and peace that he had about this fracture of the entire country is really different from, you know, right now America is in the middle of, of uh, some people think civil war, you know, or, or militant fracturing and anger, anger, like, like we've never seen um, from people that, you know, of all different political persuasions and black lives matter and, and, and Antifa and anarchists and people that want to change the whole country and, and people who don't want anything to change. And uh, uh, it, it's just a, a very different time to uh, uh, compare and contrast to. Do you, do you um, think Elvis has any role in, 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 in being a unifying force? <laughs> uh, I, no. Uh, in today's world, I don't know. I don't think anybody does. Have a unifying force. It, it's so fractured. I mean, like you said, it's so fractured. It's just so many different divisions. You know, you, you, you can't put everything, have a, a one person or a group of people who can bring this country back together, I don't think. It, it's just so divided in so many different divisions uh, that I would like to think, you know, can one person or two people, you know, uh, not right now, I don't think. Uh, I think it takes more than one person. But Well, you're a part of a very, I was surprised, can I get a peek into your subculture of, of, of Elvis's, that, that how, what, a, what a brotherly community is. I mean, it is a, it is a, uh, a community of, of competition, but a community of love and support. Uh, You've got your own brand of groupies that you call sideburn chasers, um, and I don't call them that. What, what do you call them? Fans. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, what is a sideburn chaser? Uh, to me, a fan. No. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thank you. But uh, uh, there definitely are some some affectionate female fans of Elvi. We'll leave it at that. Um, Nothing but, wrong with female fans. I'm sure there's not, but I, I've also, you know, I've seen your 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 Elvis community be incredibly um, loving and supportive, and 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 almost like a fellowship of, of of getting together for these gospel sing-alongs and conventions and and fan cruises and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so clearly, within that little community, that's that is a bonding force. Something they they share this love of this entertainer and music. Um, does that paste over any political differences that 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 you might have with the 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 overwhelmingly uh, you know white fan base or or other white Elvi or are you Robert the world class Elvis when you're on stage and as Elvis and when you're not, you're really different from everyone else in in some fundamental way. Well, Dave, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, wow. 
Well, that Elvis community, yeah, it's a tight knit group. You know, the ETA, we're a tight knit group. And ETA is an Elvis tribute artist, you know, or an Elvis impersonator, which you know that that moniker is never going to leave. But uh, but it's something it kind of like like in other you know self identified groups. Yeah, it's something that that Elvis tribute artists would rather leave behind and be referred well, to as ETAs or Elvis tribute artists. Is that right? It had a, a little stigma to it. You know, we, we associated uh, an Elvis impersonator as somebody who can't leave Elvis on the stage when they when they walk off a 24-7 type Elvis I mean, what are you talking about man I talk like this all the time what are you talking about so what we see kind of mocked in the media a lot yeah, exactly and, and back in the day those were the people that the the media were interviewing you know somebody walking around in Memphis in a, in a black leather you know Elvis's black leather 68 suit you know and it's 110 degrees out and uh type of people and in the jumpsuits and stuff and they would always run in it they wouldn't run up to the guy who's wearing he had sideburns and black hair but he had shorts and flip-flops on but there's always a guy in the jumpsuit which i get i guess it's a it's a visual thing but uh yeah and, and it's it, it was for time there it was uh that's what a lot of people outside of the elvis community you know thought of elvis and, and elvis impersonators back in the day so well i guess if we can update you know people want to be referred to by this or that pronoun or they want to be referred to uh by this or that you know group and not not use this word but instead use this word and let's let's put this word on the back burner or or on the do not use list um i guess i figure that elvis tribute artists have the right to uh uh self-determine that just like uh uh, people saying don't wear, use the R word anymore or, or what, what have you. Um, with coronavirus, you, you, there was uh, not much of an Elvis week, which takes place in the the third, second or third week of, of August every year, Elvis Death Week. Um, you said you went down there. Yep. And um, you, you said uh, the, the wall at Graceland was vandalized or, or graffitied with with uh well not the not during elvis week it was this just happened a couple of days ago actually and and what happened to it uh there a group of people came down and uh uh i would say it took at least half an hour for what they did because the whole front wall of grayson was marked up by you know black lives matters defend defund police department and etc all the the sayings that are you know out and about now was on the wall outside of graceland elvis's estate in memphis tennessee and nobody's seen it so i mean it, it took a good half an hour to do that i would imagine but uh i'm sure it was a target you know you know one of the biggest tourist attractions in memphis is graceland so that's one of the biggest tourist attractions in, in, in the country. Exactly. So good venue to get a message out or, exactly. or vandalism? Both. I mean, what? <laughs> 750,000 people visit Elvis Graceland every year. You know, it's a little less than that now, but that's a damn good target. I'm surprised they it hadn't happened earlier. So If... Uh, 
you could communicate something to to people about uh, you know sort of the Elvisness that crosses colors and religions and genders and classes, um, because it, it does right. There's people. One thing that I thought was the funniest thing in in my involvement in in the Elvis world is guys that love Elvis music so much they don't understand the words because they're from a, a, a they don't speak English well enough to understand the the lyrics but they have memorized the sounds of the lyrics meaning they sing phonetically and they don't know what they're singing yep that that to me is crossing some pretty big um you exactly. know pretty big uh, caverns yeah. um well, especially with you know uh, an Elvis message song which you know he didn't have many you know you know, like in the ghetto or something like that yeah you know, that's a message song and if you're singing it phonetically you don't have a clue what the song's about and uh Thank God there weren't that many Elvis message songs, you know, If I Can Dream. That's the greatest message song that they ever recorded. But uh, a lot of guys sing it, and, and a lot of guys who do sing it and, and just should understand it don't. You know, I, I just, the context of the song, it was written especially for Elvis. It was written during that time, you know. Elvis recorded, you know, the 68 TV special in June of 1968. You know, Robert Kennedy was just killed. Martin Luther King two months prior. You know, and and uh, you know, in Memphis. So uh, it, it's so great that these you know Steve Bender who put the show together. You know, he incorporated that and, and got songwriters. You know, like Mac Davis. You know, Mac Davis. He's a star in his own right but he wrote you know two or three songs for uh the tv special and they were i guess they were in tune what was going on in the world and when elvis heard first time elvis heard if i can dream he he was hooked i mean he absolutely loved it and he recorded the song with the lights out in the studio and he was laying on the floor when he recorded it, the vocals for that so would you and, sing a little bit of it of what? If I can dream. There must be light burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand. Tell me why. Oh, why? Oh, why can my dream come true? Oh, why? Next question. <laughs> uh, it's chilling. Exactly. The words are just bone chilling. If you think about it and take it in, in the context of 1968 when Elvis was recording that, what was going on in the world? You know, we were in the middle of a war. We just had two major assassinations. And it's just powerful. I mean, it's just powerful. It's funny because, because, uh, like I said earlier, your your casual Elvis fan, and and myself included, before getting kind of pulled into the, the 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 deep rabbit hole of Elvis, you know, you think of Jailhouse Rock and Hound Dog and and Love Me Tender, not the uh, Long Black Limousine or, or or If I Can Dream or In the Ghetto or some of these things that. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, we're pretty cutting edge for for a, a, a major, not a not a folk protest music guy, a guy who had an entire studio on his shoulders, and you know, exactly. Um, I tell people, I said, do you a little bit of homework, see what year that was recorded, what was going on in that year, and then get the best stereo system you can, and then that's a song. You have to watch Elvis sing it. You can't, you cannot just listen to the record, the recording. You have to watch Elvis sing it. Then you get the full effect of the song, watching Elvis sing it, because he poured his body and soul into it. So if, if you're just, uh, I mean, you sing amazingly well and powerful. People constantly comment. And like I said, uh, you, you won me over at a new level when I heard you sing some of these uh, songs with amazing crescendos like like Bridge Over Troubled Water or You've Lost That Love and Feeling. But um, how do you try to imitate a guy, not just his sound, but his, you know, do you go for mannerisms? Do you go for, obviously you go for wardrobe and he had this sort of classic look of sideburns and, and dyed black hair and dyed black sideburns. Some people don't know that, that he, he was not jet black hair. He was sandy blonde but yeah. uh uh and jumpsuit but but how do you go about trying to to visually impersonate him well pretty much by everything you just said you know elvis you know trademark and that was his trademark he had black hair sideburns you know and and then you know in the 70s when he started wearing the the jumpsuits that's part of it do you study choreography or mannerisms or I, moves i not really I mean, I, I pretty much go, yeah, you do a couple of patented Elvis moves, you know, like in, in particular songs, but I've gotten over that years and years and years ago because it just doesn't work. Like I said earlier, you become robotic if you try to, well, on this note, I got to move my right foot and swing my hand to the left like Elvis did, and you start overthinking the song about, it's more about your mannerism than the song itself so you get you get lost and early on and in, in when i first started I, I just i tried it that way and i would see myself on video and i'm going oh my god that's horrible and i said you know you gotta i gotta incorporate my some of my own personality my own and and i got knocked down so many years you know judges would say you're non-elvis moves and I used to go on the stage from the back of the room and run and, and flip on stage. And I did that for years. And <laughs> I remember when I first heard of you that, that I'm like, is, is that racist that, that the, these ladies are saying, oh, he jumps around on stage too much or he does these flips onto the stage and he's too bouncy. And I'm like, oh, come on. But you really were athletic and, and acrobatic and went out on the tables because Elvis, I guess, did that in, during his record-setting Vegas years. Yeah, that's the things they don't know. I, I've done my homework <laughs> over the years. I mean, I've watched hundreds of hours of uh, bootlegs, you know, shows at Elvis. You know, there's a lot more to Elvis than that's the way it is. Aloha and 68 comeback, you know, which a lot of the people, that's the three main foundations of Elvis, you know, and I'm saying that's just that's not even close. Who Elvis really was back in the day when he first started doing live performances again. He was, he was like a caged animal, you know, talking to Joe Esposito and 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 Dick, 
and uh, they said he was you couldn't control him. <laughs> he was a caged animal unleashed. He would take the microphone and beat the hell out of it. I mean, microphone stand. Look at some grainy footage of him from '69. You know, the first night. He took that microphone stand and shook the hell out of it. I mean, it probably couldn't use it again after that, but just nervous energy. And they said he was pacing backstage like like a tiger. So you've played with some of his musicians, yeah? I've been very fortunate, yeah. Well, how was that? Just eerie. What, what was their, their – did they give you any feedback? Oh, it was all positive, I mean, When I – on stage, and I would look back, and I'm going, holy crap. That's the same freaking piano player, same bass player. Oh, my God. Same drummer. So, and that's what it's all about. You know, when I, I'm obviously doing something right. When when I have an Elvis's chief security said, uh, don't like ETAs, I'll come to a convention. But when the show starts, I'm gone. And that's the way he was for many years. I'll come give my story of me working, my Elvis stories, and when I'm done and you guys get up and start singing, I'm gone. And I respect that, so. But I won't so, come over. You, so is there, there, there is a, a happy ending to that story? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> One of Elvis's uh, Memphis Mafia security ensemble or entourage. Dick Grobe. I'll, I'll mention the name who just passed, you know, a couple of months ago. Hated Elvis impersonators. Oh, he's just Elvis, you know. He, he And and you won him over. Yep. By a couple songs. He loved Just Pretend. That was his song. And uh, he was out in the lobby, you know, book signing or sell, selling pictures or whatever and uh, he heard me sing that song he got up walked to the door to look in see who was singing that song came to me afterwards and said I have not heard that song sang better since the man himself sang it and that's exactly what he said and that's widely known as one of the one of the toughest high notes to hit can you give us a verse of that? Just pretend? Yeah. <laughs> you warmed up? With the high note? Oh, my God. Oh, I will hold you and love you again. Oh, until then, we'll just pretend. That's it. Wow. So they say Elvis stole black music from black people. And I said, you can't steal from an environment you grew up in. And so Robert Washington's not stealing it back. No, I'm not. Fair enough. Well, hey, Robert. Um, thanks for coming out here. Thanks for sitting down to chat with us. And That's uh, fine. That's fine. I look forward to seeing you, seeing you perform. All right. Here we go.
Where a hokey shiny 